Now, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, Romans is what we're going through. So if you're just joining us, we're in Romans chapter 8. And the good news is, well, I have on the PowerPoint down to verse 39, okay? So we will finish Romans chapter 8. It's just my challenge is getting it in under half an hour. So I'll start the timer right now. Romans chapter 8, I highly encourage you to have your Bibles open to that passage um, even though I will have the verses up on the board. But as I always say, it's good to compare. I like to put simple verses um, on the board. And um, I do it from all different translations. So I, I actually choose um, each verse. And sometimes I do different translations. Well, one interesting one that I had to include today, um, which I might reference later on, is the, I think it's the Good Word translation. It's the only translation that had a particular word in it um, that I wanted included in the passage. The title of this morning's message, Are You Convinced? That's the question. Are you convinced? And if you don't know what we're talking about, um, then bear with me. I included a quote here just to really get the application for us up and going. Because if you're not convinced, how can you convince others? That's what I want to challenge you with you today. If you're not convinced of what we're reading in Romans chapter 8, how in the world can you convince others? Because this is a truly important doctrine that we're going through. The doctrine of eternal security. And we left off last week with this um, picture of saying, if God has justified you, and we went through the meaning of what actually justification means, and if just a quick recap, it is a legal term where God has declared you not guilty. God has taken all your sins, He placed them at the cross, Jesus Christ took that punishment for your sins, and just because, just through your faith rather, just through your faith, God has declared you innocent, not guilty of things that you have done in the past, things that you might be even doing right now in your thoughts, and things that you might do tomorrow maybe. We're talking about sins. We, we praise God this morning that we are eternally secure. We can have peace with God knowing that He has declared us, and not just that. We're going to be challenged today about whether He actually treats us as justified people. So, because He has justified us, no man or devil can ever condemn you. No one. Where do we get that from? Well, the question is from Paul in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Again, this is a question that I'm sure Paul was confronted with. And I don't know why, myself, um, trying to put myself in the shoes of Paul, but we're told, we're told at the start of chapter 8 and verse 1, read it if you need to be reminded of it. I'm going to refer to it again later in the message. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So no one can condemn. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who has been raised. 
He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So when we think of um, maybe the past sins that we committed this last week or maybe some horrific ones the previous few years, I don't know when it was, and it's after you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't you feel at times that you should be condemned? And technically we should, but look, our salvation is not dependent on us. It's dependent on Jesus Christ, who is the one who died. He's the one who took the punishment for us. And to enforce or to validate that punishment, to show us that it actually was legitimate, well, he didn't stay in the grave. He couldn't stay in the grave. He was raised from the dead. He was raised by God the Father. And in a way, through his resurrection, our life has been resurrected. How so? Well, because when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you actually died. Your old self actually died. Your old, wicked, deceitful heart was actually crucified. It was pulled out of you and it was replaced with a new heart, a new spirit, a spirit that is, has been baptized into Christ's spirit, into the spirit of God. So therefore, we have our spirit, our new spirit rather, not our old deceitful heart by the way, we are a new creation. A lot of people believe that this thing is still around, this old deceitful heart. Why are we preaching that we have old deceitful hearts? It does not make sense that we have been made new. Just because God's spirit has been immersed with ours, with our old one, doesn't cancel out the, the, the belief that there's a new creation in us. We actually have a new heart. Please reread Jeremiah 33. It's a prophecy that came true. And it's not just for the Jews, which we're going to be talking about in chapter 9. It's for everyone. Everyone. Even God's non-chosen people. Now, this is interesting because it says, He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And so I have up here... The Holy Spirit making intercession, which if I look up quickly um, earlier in the chapter, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And now we're told, now we're told in verse 34, Jesus also makes intercession for us. So one thing that I encourage you to do, and really I, I probably confess that I haven't fully wrapped my mind around this, this thought of we have the Holy Spirit praying for us, and at the same time, we have Jesus praying for us. What are they praying for? Well, we're told in the Holy Spirit is praying for things in our life that we don't know what to pray for. He actually prays for us. So it's like when we're in this moment in time in our lives where things are not going well and, wow, what in the world is going on, we ask ourselves, what in the world do I pray for? Even when I look at someone, my neighbor or my loved one, and they're going through this hell on earth that I have no um, understanding of and, and it cannot help them, well, the Holy Spirit 
prays for me. And then Jesus, we're told, is praying for us. In what way is Jesus praying for us? Well, could it be that maybe when we do falter, when we get into those um, stages in life where it might last for one minute or one year or maybe one decade, we get into this stage of rebellion where we say no to the Holy Spirit. We quench it. We grieve it. Is it that Jesus is praying on our behalf? That I've taken the punishment? Now, it's very dangerous to think like this because then we could think of God the Father as, you know, having this conversation with Jesus and saying, and, and then we class God the Father as this, you know, this, this guy that's, oh my goodness, can you believe that, you know, Tim would act like that? And then Jesus responds to him and, and says, no, no, I've taken his punishment on for us. I don't think God the Father is like that because we are told in Scripture, especially the New Testament, that his character does not reflect one where he, he, he knows that Jesus has taken the punishment for me, but maybe Jesus is the one that's counseling me. I've always said that God's discipline on us is not punishing us for our past sins. God's discipline on us, and really it should be on our children as well, God's discipline is training us for the future. So this is the version that I chose. This is the only version that starts verse 35 off with what? Every single version, your version, mine says who? Even though when you look at the Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean who. It can mean what. To me, it makes sense to put what because when you look at the examples that Paul uses, there's no more people that he's talking about. Notice the previous verses that we've just gone through. It's all talking about who. Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? Who can be against us? Whereas now we're talking about circumstances. We're talking about situations here that happens in life. And just get to the point, get to that question where you might be asking yourself, why does Paul use these examples? What's he talking about? The whole general idea again is that question, what can or will separate us from the love of Christ or the love Christ has for us? What can, nothing, exactly right, nothing, but he asks again rhetorical questions. Can trouble, or in your version it might say tribulation, just general hardships, hardships that bring pressure. When you look at the Greek word, it actually means pressure. The pressures in life, the troubles that come. But then we get to another word, distress. And when you look at this study of this word, contrasting it with tribulation or troubles, I think it's getting into a more more distressful situation. So when I was thinking of, uh, when I was looking at the study of this word, it wasn't just, uh, I'm just trying to think of it right now, Um, it wasn't just hardship, but severe hardship. It actually, you get the word from, um, from a, a narrow, a narrow um, pressure. So I'm thinking of 
You, you ever got to that place and you, you, we have a saying for it, right? Um, I'm, 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 I'm in a tight place right now. Um, I've dug myself into a hole and I can't get out of it. Right? It's like that place in your life when, or a situation that you, know, you just think, oh my goodness, there's no way out of this for me. It's just very narrow. It's just in your face and you can't get out. Whereas a general hardship, you're having some trouble, you know, uh, it's pressure, but it's a bit more backed off, so to speak. So I think Paul here is just trying to get something more, more severe, more hard in your life when you compare it to tribulation. Persecution. This is specifically talking about suffering for Christ. So we know lots of people... Um, lots of Bible characters were, were persecuted, uh, especially once the, the, the New Testament church came about. They were persecuted. Hunger, going without food, nakedness. So I think not just going without food, but going without the bare necessities. Shelter, clothing. Lots of people are, are homeless right now, right? Maybe that can be referred to as nakedness. They might have one shirt on their back, but that's all they got. Um, danger, or your, your version might say peril. So when danger comes, can that separate you? Does that separate you from the love of Christ? Violent death, so sword is the, is the, the, the word used in my version, sword. In other words... Death, you being murdered, does that separate you from the love of Christ? I've been asking myself, why? Why does, why does Paul use these, use these examples? Because when I think of these, and I think of just, for example, hunger, I don't, I've been trying to understand the connection between why would someone relate being hungry to being separated from the love of Christ. What's going on there? What do you think Paul's trying to convince his readers about? And I, this is my opinion, because again, this is trying to get into the mind of Paul. I believe, just like 2,000 years ago, people do the same thing that we do. When, something not, when something's not going right for you, maybe... You can't put some food on the table. Maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe someone's wringing down your neck because of your faith in Christ. Maybe you're in a, a place where everything's not going right. What do, you, what, what, do, what do we do? What are we tempted to do? I've done this myself. We always say, what have I done wrong, Lord? Why are you allowing this? Why are you doing this to me? Why? What have I done to deserve this? And we question the love of Christ, do we not? We question it. We doubt, saying, is there something I did that's wrong? I was even talking to someone about their computer breaking down. Why did you allow that, Lord? We, we all do it. And I reckon they did it 2,000 years ago as well. 
but nothing. These situations that just happen to us, it's not an indication of God's love for us. It is not an indicator. Just to put that into perspective and something that you might like to take away from you. I don't know if anyone has claimed this yet, but this is my quote. Nothing you did got you into heaven, so nothing you do will get you out. Nothing got you in. So what makes us think that something we do will get us out? Why do some Christians believe that we can lose our salvation? Why? Why do we get into this place where, hey, yep, I understand that Jesus Christ dying on the cross, that demonstration of grace, that's what saves me. He's taken my punishment. But why do we get to the place where, nah, in order, to, in order to my, for, for my faith to be sustained, I have to do this, I have to do that. It's dependent on me. Now they did do it 2,000 years ago. Just read the book of Galatians. Paul ridicules them and says, how can you, saying that you've been made perfect through grace, feel that you have to be, maintain your perfectedness through works? And what was their works? Their works was making sure that you were circumcised. Now we've just changed that circumcision into other things. Our faith can only be maintained when we pray enough, when we go to church enough, when we get baptised, when we read our Bibles even. It's all to do with the motivation of these things. Now, all of those good things, all of those things are good and we need to do. But what's your motivation for doing them? Is it to make sure that your faith is sustained, God's love for you is maintained at a high level? Is that why you do it? It's the wrong reason. Our reason should be so we can grow, so we can mature, not so we think, hey, God's going to be more happier with me if I do that. His love for us never changes. There is only one level of his love. It's, it's all the way up here. Nothing can separate us. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't fluctuate. It stays all the way up here. Remember, it's the ultimate demonstration of love. And then he brings in a, a, a verse, just as it is written. For your sake we are being put to death all day. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. I don't have time to, uh, to read the psalm, but it's found in Psalm 44 and verse 22. And it would take a whole lot of... Um, I, again, that's another thing that I confess I actually haven't fully grasped on why Paul chose this particular verse just to plonk in here. Part of it is, I think, because, notice how it says, for your sake we are being put to death. For your sake. It's not for anyone else's sake. It's for your sake. Again, is this a, a circumstance which I'm... I'm kind of thankful that, you know, we don't have to put up with this, with this kind of persecution, where we don't have to worry about being put to death. We don't have to worry about, you know, people storming in this place with machine guns yet. Hopefully it never gets to this place in the Western world, but we know in China it is, right? And the reason I'm, I'm kind of conflicted is because in China, 
Well, that's the place where Christianity is growing the fastest. <laughs> Why? Is it the persecution? But for your sake, we are being put to death. Do you remember Jesus' words? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now we're actually given a promise that we're actually going to have trouble. I don't think this is just for the disciples. I think it's just for all Christians. And it's really dependent though on how vocal you are with your faith. And it varies between places and, and people. But in a way I'm thinking, maybe Paul is referencing this to say, hey, you suffering for Christ, it's got nothing to do with you. It's actually got to do with what God is doing in your life. We might be here in the, I'm saying, I'll say the Western world, where we might be think, oh, you know, why, why, why am I receiving death threats from this person that doesn't even know me, but I'm just proclaiming my, my faith in Christ? And compare that to someone who, you know, you read plenty of testimonies of Christians in the underground church overseas, and they actually find it a privilege to suffer for Christ. I wonder if we are at that place, if we can get to that place. Not just individually, but even as a, as a, a local body of believers. Finding it a privilege to suffer for Christ, knowing that it's God's love. I don't know. Something to think about. But nevertheless, Paul sums up with these last few verses again it's a, it's, a, it's a resounding no. No. That's what I'm saying. Are you convinced yet? No. Nothing can separate us. In all these things, all these things that we just spoke about, we are more than victorious, or your version might say, more than conquerors, again, through him who loved us. So firstly, why do I have a Nike symbol there? It's because... Nike, or in the Greek you might say Nike, um, is derived from this word that we get, conquerors, victorious. Okay? Um, Nike proclaims it's from a, a goddess of victory, but nevertheless, the Greek word is all derived from this one meaning, victorious. But notice that we're just not victorious. We're actually more than victorious. So you could say we are a in the Greek, it's hupia, or where we get the word hyper. We are hyper-victorious. We are more than victorious. Can you get higher than victorious? I don't know, but I think Paul's just trying to get to the point that, hey, because we're Christians, we are more than victorious even when these things happen. Why? Because the things that are happening are just temporary. We have a, a greater place to go to. We have a, a, a better, a better, I'll say world, to be part of, to experience eternally. And that's in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And please don't get stuck up there um, by, by focusing on that past tense word, loved us, okay? It's actually a, a, a participle, so um, it's, it's God loving us. It's, it, again, it never changes. We say he loved us, doesn't mean he's going to stop loving us. It's just past tense. It's continuous. 
And then last one, the last couple. For I am persuaded. For I am convinced. Paul's convinced. Are you convinced that neither death? So if there's anything else for him to mention other than those things, anything that you've thought of, well, he sums it up with these things. And if you can think of anything else, well, come see me. I'm interested because I can't think of anything else. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. So we're talking about demonic, demons, anything spiritual powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in the past, nothing in the future. My goodness. Nor height. So I'm thinking here, what, anything above us? Nor depth, anything below us? Nor any, there he goes, nor any other created thing. I'm thinking right now, John 1, you know, nothing was created that was created other than through Jesus Christ, the Word that was made flesh, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, again, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, who? In Christ Jesus. Again, it's an identity. It's a transformation that has placed us from being in Adam to being in Christ. There are two kinds of people in this world. Ones who are in Adam and ones who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, well, no condemnation for you. No judgment for you. You can be confident on judgment day. But if you're in Adam, what's well, a different story? But, you might say, but what about ourselves? What about ourselves? Can't we change our minds? And so this is approaching, again, a person who believes that if you do enough bad things in life, then God's love will cancel out on you. As I said, if you know these people, invite them to do a study of Romans chapter 8 because I cannot see how a person can read this chapter and still believe that you are not eternally secure. It's impossible. What about ourselves, though? Can't we change our minds? Can't we just, you know, say, nah, Lord, I don't want anything more to do with you. I've had enough. I've been hurt by the church too much. Maybe to the point where, you know, you discuss. I'm just thinking even of um, some famous people you might know, that their denial of faith is public for everyone to see. Now, there are times you need to read, uh, I didn't include this one, but um, there's, a, there's a verse in, um, in 1 John where it actually says if they were, um, they, they were with us from the start, but they're, they're no longer with us. If they were with us, they would have been one of us. But they're no longer with us, that it will be made apparent or manifest that they were never really of us. So there are some people that are described in Matthew chapter 7. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And what does he say? No, I never knew you. I call them pretenders. I believe there are pretenders in the church. I'm not talking about those people though. I'm talking about people who actually wholeheartedly believe they don't firmly know who they are in Christ and they think of all the bad things they've done and they say, nah, I'm, the Lord's not going to accept that. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.13. Just here are some verses that you might like to jot down. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
He can't deny himself. Remember, what's that talking about? Our spirit being immersed in Christ's spirit, we are one with God. Because we are one with God, he can't deny himself. He can't deny himself. But what if you change your mind? What if you no longer want to be a part of it? Well, this is an interesting verse to know. It's actually a, a benediction from Ephesians chapter 6. You know, your version might not exactly say this, but usually Paul closes his letters with, you know, grace be to you all. But notice what it says. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That to me is saying our love for God is undying. Your version might say incorruptible. Your love for God cannot die. And why do you think that's so? Why? It's because, again, His Spirit has been immersed or baptized. We have been baptized into His Spirit. It's immersed. It's, it's together. It cannot separate us. He can't leave. He won't leave. He won't forsake us. And I'm convinced that's what Jesus was talking about in the Gospels. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because we are one and that oneness cannot change. Now we might get to the point where our feelings, our mind might be so twisted because we are not following Romans chapter 12, we're not renewing our mind, we get to that point where we think, nah, it's just, it's not there. But in reality, it's there. And so we, may we never get to that place where we quench the Holy Spirit, say no to it. Because the more times you do it, well, unfortunately, the more times it becomes a habit, and the habit just turns into a, all of a sudden you've, you've just lived your life. And you've just said no, 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 no. Is your joy going to remain full? No way. You are going to be the most miserable person here on earth. Why? Because remember in Ephesians, uh, Romans chapter 6, we have been given an obedient heart. We have been given a heart that is actually allergic to sin. So we might get to the point where our mind thinks we want to sin, thinks we might enjoy it, but... We will never be satisfied. We will never be content. We will never be joyful. We are actually going to be miserable if we ever get to that point. Maybe you've been to that point and you hear all these testimonies of, yeah, I've got to that stage in life where, oh, I had to get right with God. doesn't necessarily God left you. You might have felt like God left you and that makes sense because we weren't true of our calling. Our lifestyle did not match it. If we want to be strong, if we want to be more than conquerors, our lifestyle has to match our faith. Otherwise, we will just suffer. And that's the end of Romans chapter 8. And next week, we will begin chapter 9. Let's praise God for eternal security this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your eternal love. The love where we are told that whoever believes in your one and only, 
begotten Son, has eternal life. Not temporary life, but eternal life and will not perish. Father, we just thank you for that hope that we have. Thank you for your never-changing love for us. And we praise you that you've made us a new creation where you've, been, you've given us an undying love. A love that is really beyond words to describe. Help us now, Father, to grasp a deeper understanding of your love for us, Lord. And whether that's through Bible study, through meditating on your word, through prayer, through maybe church attendance, help our motives to be accurate and valid, Lord, where we're doing it because you've saved us, not to get more saved. We ask for this help. We want to give you all the praise, all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.